It's time for the 7th Avenue Project. Hello, welcome to the show. I'm Robert Polly. Today, it's terribly exciting and wonderful to discover in science that you're wrong. And how wrong scientists were. They thought they knew what the universe was made of, namely the same ordinary matter that we see all around us. But in the last 20 years, they have learned, to their shock, that regular matter, the kind that makes up planets and stars and us, accounts for only about 4 to 5% of the cosmic recipe. The remaining 95% or so of ingredients consists of some as yet unidentified stuff that astronomers are calling dark matter and dark energy. Dark, meaning we can't see it and we don't know what it is. Now that blows a huge hole in all prior assumptions, and it opens a grand new frontier in cosmological research, which is not such a bad thing if that happens to be your line of work. Nature seems to be a little bit more subtle and beautiful than we had imagined. And it's a wonderful time to be confronted with ignorance. That is Rocky Cobb, astrophysicist. We'll be hearing from him in the first part of today's show, describing the knowns and unknowns of dark matter and dark energy. Then in part two, some of the real-life drama behind the science with Richard Panic. He's the author of a new book, The 4% Universe, Dark Matter, Dark Energy, and the Race to Discover the Rest of Reality. Stay tuned. Now, part one of today's show, Rocky Cobb. He's a professor of astronomy and astrophysics at the University of Chicago, and I spoke to him a couple of years ago when he was traveling around giving a public lecture on our new darker image of the cosmos. The title of the, uh, the lecture is Mysteries of the Dark Universe. So what's the mystery? The mystery is, what is it? One of the amazing discoveries in the last 20 or 30 years in astronomy has been that most of the universe is missing. It's dark. We don't see it. There's dark matter holding galaxies together. There's dark energy pushing galaxies apart in the cosmic expansion. We don't know what it is. I want to back up and ask you, what is ordinary matter? What are, what are you and I made of? We are made of neutrons and protons and electrons that form together to form atoms and molecules. What are stars made of? Stars are made of mostly hydrogen and helium. Atoms. Atoms, right. And, and there's other stuff out there that falls into this category of ordinary matter, like... Like gas. In addition to the stars and planets that we see, most of the normal matter in the universe, the neutrons and protons and normal matter, is in the form of a hot gas that's mostly found in clusters of galaxies. There's also a lot of sort of free-floating particles out there, neutrinos and things. There's more mass in elementary particles known as neutrinos than in, uh, it's comparable to what's in stars, actually. Mm -hmm. So a neutrino is like an electron if you would go in with a very small pair of tweezers and pull out the charge of an electron. Don't, don't try this at home, but <laughs> if you could pull out the charge of an electron, what would be left behind would be a neutrino. Very weakly interacting. They have a very small mass. They were produced in the earliest moments of the Big Bang. They are around, and they produce about as much mass to the universe as in stars. 
So we've got planets and objects that we're familiar with in our daily lives. We've got stars, we've got gases, and we've got these neutrinos bouncing around. But all of that so-called ordinary matter accounts for how much of the matter in the universe? A little bit less than 20% of the total matter of the universe. So four-fifths of the matter of the universe, 80 cents on the dollar, is unaccounted for. We don't know what it is. We just have a name for it. And the name name is is dark matter. Why dark? Because we don't see it. It doesn't seem to emit any type of radiation that we can see. It's uh, it's invisible. We only see it through the gravitational force that it produces. We know it by its effect. By its effect on stuff that we do see. And what is that effect? The effect is to um, hold galaxies together. So we look at galaxies. They can be spinning. And the thing that's holding the stars in the galaxy, preventing them from flying off into space, is the gravitational force of all of the matter in the galaxy. A galaxy is like, uh, you know... Pizza dough tossed in the air and spun. Good. And, uh, and gravity is what keeps that pizza dough from flying apart. Right. But if we look at all the stars and other objects in a galaxy, we don't see enough there to produce... The gravitational force necessary to hold the galaxy together. The galaxies are spinning so rapidly that it should fly apart if the only force is the gravitational force of the stars and the stuff that we do see in the galaxy. Therefore... Therefore, either our understanding of gravity is completely wrong, or there is some mysterious dark matter that we don't see holding the galaxy together. Well, which is it? I wish I knew. <laughs> I, think, I think it's more likely to be dark matter. No one has come up with, to me, a convincing way to modify gravity to explain the observation. Well, it's not just you who who believes in dark matter. I think the majority of cosmologists at this point do, don't they? Yes. Almost all cosmologists uh, believe that that there is dark matter. What might this dark matter be? Is it just rocks that we can't see floating around out there? That was one idea, that it is normal matter, neutrons and protons and atoms, that are assembled in some form that does not emit radiation. Mm. And... This pr- it's probably not rocks, but people talked about very low-mass stars, which do not emit much, much light, or black holes. And these, in general, were called massive astronomical compact halo objects. That's a mouthful, so we called them machos. <laughs> and uh, there was thought by many people that the universe, mass of the universe is dominated by machos. So this was an idea, it's a science, and this would have a, it makes a prediction, and people went out and that prediction and looked, and we didn't see any evidence of machos. Mm. So we don't think the universe is dominated by machos. The other possibility is that the mass of the universe is dominated by a weakly interacting massive particle, or a wimp. (laughs) So we seem to live in a wimpy universe and not a macho universe. (laughs) A weakly interacting massive particle. This is something that nobody's ever seen. They're just speculating that this thing exists out there. We've never seen a wimp that is the dark matter. We have seen a neutrino is an example of a wimp. A neutrino is a particle that has a little bit of mass, and it's weakly interacting. It doesn't have the usual electromagnetic interactions that would make it shine. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have strong interactions to bind it to neutrons or protons. It only is little weak feeble interactions. Mm -hmm. But neutrinos, 
were once thought as a good candidate for dark matter, but they're not quite massive enough. Uh-huh. We should say a neutrino is a very strange critter indeed. I mean, it can pass through ordinary matter without having any impact whatsoever. Your listeners are having neutrinos pass through their body as they listen here. It doesn't matter whether they're inside or underground. Neutrinos are produced from the sun, and billions of them are passing every second, night and day, through your body. And that's what we mean by weakly interacting. It really weak. You can't feel them. You can't touch them. You can't smell them. They just pass right through you. But neutrinos don't answer this question, what is dark matter? No. So it, it was close. It was a tantalizing hint that there are weakly interacting massive particles in nature. So what we want is sort of a beefier, we want neutrinos on steroids, a little bit more massive than a neutrino, maybe a lot more massive than a neutrino. So a neutrino on steroids is the uh, possibility for dark matter. And, and guys like you are looking for these particles. We are looking for them, and they, they may show up in many ways. So I, we talked about them passing through us without really affecting us, but it's possible once in a while for a wimp or a neutrino to pass through your body and slightly nudge one of the atoms in your body. Just give it a little small kick, a little recoil, just one nucleus. You can't feel it. But if you had a sensitive enough detector you may be able to see the effect of this small recoil. Hmm. Now, you have to have it very, very, very cold because thermal. you have to cut down the thermal motions, which mask it. And you have to have it very deep underground to protect it from cosmic rays, this radiation that's coming in that would make it look like it was a wimp. Hmm. So there are maybe a dozen experiments throughout the world where people are working underground with very sensitive, very cold detectors, trying to detect the relic wimps that are most of the mass of the universe. Uh -huh. I, I think I've also heard that uh, there might be some evidence coming out of particle accelerators, like the Large Hadron Collider uh, that just started up in uh, Switzerland and France. This looks very promising. The idea of the origin of the wimp is that it was produced in the primordial soup of the Big Bang, that in the early universe at very high energies and temperatures, and the wimps were produced in this primordial cauldron, the primordial soup. Well, we can reproduce primordial soup in the laboratory today, in accelerators, where protons are smashed together at very high energy, reproducing for a brief instant a little piece of the primordial soup. So if the wimp was produced in the Big Bang, it should be an ingredient in the primordial soup. Uh-huh. Now, these artificially produced WIMPs um, will help us understand the WIMPs that are all out there, as you say, generated at the moment of the Big Bang or, or soon thereafter. But where are they out there? The WIMPs uh, seem to form a diffuse halo surrounding galaxies that we do see. So if you look through a telescope at a galaxy, you see an enormous structure, but it's only a small part of the total size of a galaxy if you would include the dark matter. The dark matter seems to extend 10 times larger than the size of the galaxy that we do see. So the, the galaxy that we do see, the visible galaxy, is embedded in a spherical halo uh, that's much larger than we actually do see. Uh-huh. It's this little bright spot in the middle of a big dark circle. That's right. Um, now, that sounds a little counterintuitive if the dark matter, or the wimps, hypothetically speaking, 
is what's holding the galaxy together. How can it hold the galaxy together when it's on the outside? The wimps are not only on the outside. They're also they're spread throughout the galaxy, mm-hmm. that we, even that we do see. But it's the glue, the, it's the gravitational glue that's holding that galaxy together. You think we could have an answer to the mystery of dark matter sometime soon? There's really good evidence to believe that we're right now on the verge of getting knowledge of dark matter in several ways, from particle accelerators, telescopes on Earth, and also detectors underground. This, this could be an, an amazing time where for the first time in human history, we get an idea of what the universe is act- the mass of the universe is actually made of. This will only happen one time in human history. <laughs> that is the matter part of the universe. There's ordinary matter, which we've talked about, and there's dark matter, which is speculative at this point, but many, many cosmologists believe it exists, and as you say, we may even find out what it's made of soon. But all that matter, on the other hand, is only what percent of the total mass of the universe? It's only about 25%. So we're still missing 75%. Right. That, uh, this is something that's even more troubling than dark matter. We have less of an understanding of it than we do of dark matter, but we have a name for it. We call it dark energy. When did it dawn on us that there was um, this rather large constituent of the universe that we know nothing about? Well, the idea of the possibility of dark energy goes back to 1917, and it was an idea of someone named Albert Einstein. Oh, don't tell me. He thought of that, too? In 1915, Einstein developed his theory of gravity. One of his first things he did with it is to try to understand cosmology, the universe. Einstein thought that the universe was stationary. It didn't expand or contract. And in order to force a stationary solution to his equations he introduced something that he referred to as a cosmological constant. Mm -hmm. Now we view this as effectively a mass density, a mass energy density to completely empty space, that somehow the structure of space is such that empty space has a small amount of mass associated with it. It's a very small amount, but there's a lot of space in the universe. So Einstein introduced this idea of a cosmological term, to have a stationary universe, and uh, about 12 years later, Edwin Hubble discovered, in fact, that the universe is not stationary, the universe is expanding. Einstein didn't believe this at first, but after about five years, the evidence was overwhelming that the universe expands, and Einstein called the introduction of this cosmological constant, or dark energy, the biggest blunder of his life. Now, he didn't realize that 64 years later, astronomers would find evidence for dark energy. 1998. 1998. So the lesson, I guess, to draw from this is to never admit you're wrong. <laughs> now, what happened in 1998 that, that really got cosmologists thinking about this new and unexplained stuff called dark energy? Dark energy affects the expansion history of the universe. In 1929, Hubble discovered the universe is expanding. Mm-hmm. So he could measure the velocity of expansion of the present universe. Now, by the 1990s, we developed telescopes and instruments that were powerful enough to allow us to look out in space, back in time, telescopes are time machines, 
to an earlier history in the universe and measure the expansion velocity of the universe at an earlier epoch. We expected it to be faster because as the universe expands, one would expect the effect of the gravitational mass of everything in the universe to slow the expansion. But that's not what was discovered. What was discovered is that the universe is expanding faster today than it was in the past. So we call this the acceleration of the universe. The velocity of expansion seems to increase with time, and this turns out to be exactly what is predicted by Einstein's little cosmological constant, the dark energy that he rejected mm -hmm. in 1934. Mm. Something is pushing the universe apart at a faster and faster rate. Something is pushing the universe apart. We call this dark energy. We don't know what it is. One explanation is that it's just Einstein's cosmological constant. I say just, although it's a remarkable discovery, that it has to do something, something to do with the structure of empty space itself. Astronomers could be weighing space, really discovering the mass of space itself. 70% of the mass of the universe, so-called dark energy, may be the weight of space itself. It's a remarkable idea. <laughs> so I, I could give you a number. that Now, these numbers are very hard to really comprehend in human terms, but the mass density of space is about 10 to the minus 30, a decimal point, followed by 30 zeros, then a 1, times the density of water or people or normal matter. It's an incredibly small density. But there's a lot of space. Mm -hmm. What's being done to, to, to further uh, explain the nature of dark energy? One of the big questions having to do with the nature of dark energy is whether it is co Einstein's cosmological constant or is it something else? Uh -huh. If it's just Einstein's cosmological constant, it's a number. It's a fundamental property of space that does not change with time. Space always had this weight, this density, and will always have this density. There are other ideas that, in fact, the density, the mass associated with space changes with time. And that's really the observational, experimental question in dark energy research is whether the d mass density of space changes with time. That really is the focus of present and future ex observations on this. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, what's it like for people in your profession to have thought until fairly recently that they knew what the universe was made of and to find out they didn't know squat? It's terribly exciting and wonderful to discover in science that you're wrong. <laughs> There's a difference in science, at least, between being wrong and being stupid. We weren't stupid before, but we were wrong when we thought we knew what the universe was made of. Nature seems to be a little bit more subtle and beautiful than we had imagined. And it's a wonderful time to be confronted with ignorance. And people think of the leading edge of research as being a sharp, uh, beautiful thing, but it's also the leading edge of research the leading edge of knowledge is also the leading edge of ignorance. It's the raw edge of ignorance, in addition to being the leading edge of research. And it's a wonderful place to work. Rocky Cobb teaches astronomy and astrophysics at the University of Chicago. This is the 7th Avenue Project. I'm Robert Polly. 
Well, Rocky Cobb and other scientists may have learned to love the dark, but for many, the notion of dark matter and dark energy took some real getting used to. And for the researchers who first proposed those ideas, it was an uphill battle. They were, after all, taking on decades of received wisdom and common sense, and there was a lot of understandable resistance from the scientific establishment. I spoke to the science writer Richard Panic about those struggles, which he covers in his book *The Four Percent Universe: Dark Matter, Dark Energy, and the Race to Discover the Rest of Reality*. We started by discussing the discovery of dark matter. And one of the heroes in that part of Richard Panic's account is the astronomer Vera Rubin. In the late 1960s, she was working at the Carnegie Institution in Washington, D.C. She was working with a colleague, Kent Ford, who'd invented a new kind of instrument. It was called an image tube spectrograph, and it let astronomers study fainter and more distant objects than they'd previously been able to see. Rubin and Ford were using it to observe the rotation of the Andromeda Galaxy. They were measuring the motion of stars way out on the fringes of the galaxy, which, like our own Milky Way, is a spiral galaxy, and it spins like a pinwheel. And they noticed that, you know, you would think naively that as you get out from the center, that you could follow Newton's laws or Kepler's laws in the same way that the solar system works. That you know, Mercury is going to be going faster around the sun than Earth because it's closer to the sun, and that Pluto will be going very slowly around the sun, and that there is this、um, inverse square relationship, and that's what they expected to see in Andromeda. In other words, the farther from the center, the slower the、mm-hmm. rotation. Exactly, exactly.、Mm-hmm. But they were finding out that they could get. To the outermost reaches of the stars and gas that were visible, and the rotation wasn't dropping off. It was staying the same, the same rate. It was rotating so quickly that it should have been falling apart. The galaxy、mm-hmm. was spinning so fast it should have been flying apart. Right. And instead, it was hanging together, which、um, right obviously suggests that something's missing. Right. <laughs> Vera Rubin, this this pioneering、uh, astronomer, didn't make any. Conclusions about this. Now, at the same time, at Princeton, Jim Peebles—he's、uh, another figure in this book who appears again and again, just because he just has this great intuition about what's going to make great science. So, at this point, he's doing computer simulations, and these are really primitive computer simulations of the motion of our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy. And he saw that our galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, which has probably gone through I don't know a dozen or something rotations in its history, also should have been shredding apart, and almost immediately it wouldn't have completed even one rotation. It would have like wobbled like a potato chip and and flopped all over the place. Okay, so、uh, galaxies were were hanging together when they shouldn't be hanging together. Right. This means that there's some kind of mass there holding them together gravitationally that you can't see. Right, Jim Peebles again in running these computer simulations. He and、uh, and another astronomer, Jerry Ostreicher, would、uh, would take these computer simulations. They say, okay, how can we stabilize this galaxy? What if we say that there's something else there? What if we draw a halo around this galaxy and say that it's full of matter? And they did that. And the galaxy still didn't stabilize, so they made a bigger halo and a bigger halo and a bigger halo, and finally they had this gigantic halo surrounding the small galaxy, and that's when the galaxy stabilized. And they said, in that case, it would appear that there's some source of mass in there that we can't see. That and Vera Rubin's observations, and then other observations where other observers were, you know, showing that these galaxies,、uh, that the rotation rates 
were so fast at the rim of what we could observe. Now, now uh, this is all taking place, I guess, in the, in the 1970s mostly, right. late 60s, yes. 1970s. Yep. And I think you write that by 1980, um, Vera Rubin and, uh, and others were predicting that there was some form of invisible matter out there. And it was providing the gravitation that was holding these spinning galaxies together because the stars and other visible things simply weren't enough to do that. Right. Uh, can you tell me some of the battles, though, that Vera Rubin had to fight in order to even get to the point where she could publish, you know, these extremely oh, yeah. important findings? Well, those battles go back right to her uh, to her time in high school when she wanted to be an astronomer, and teachers were discouraging her. And then she applied to colleges, and they were saying, "Well." Let's see. You like art. You like <laughs> astronomy. Maybe you can be an astronomy artist. Okay. And she just laughed at these things. I mean, she's a very self-confident person. Uh, and she and she just went her own way and, and became an astronomer at a time when women were not astronomers. And she met resistance along the way, but that's partly because she was a woman, but also because her ideas were kind of intuitive. She was following what made sense to her, but it was outside of the astronomical mainstream, and she didn't realize that. So just by pursuing her own interests, she um, started observing galaxies and thinking and, and taking catalogs of galaxies and seeing how did they interact. At this point, around 1950, the idea of galaxies, of these huge, you know, of, of these huge collections of stars was only 25 years old. I mean, it only dates back from the middle of the 1920s when Edwin Hubble discovered that there were things like the Milky Way galaxy separate from us and that there were many of them and that the universe was vastly populated with them. So she was the first generation to be thinking about the universe in terms of galaxies. And so the old school astronomers hadn't yet made that adjustment, but she, being 20 years old and a little naive, just said, well, let's just look at galaxies and see how they're behaving. It is hard to remember that this is such a new science that it was only the 1920s when Hubble and others discovered there were galaxies beyond our own. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. It's less than 100 years ago. My, my father was born in 1920. He's older than the universe. <laughs> you know, it's interesting that uh, Vera Rubin isn't by any means the only woman involved um, in these stories. I mean, going back uh, a ways farther, there was um, Henrietta Swan Levitt, who was very important in um, classifying a type of star called the Cepheid variable. Is that right? Right. And, uh, and charting these stars, it became a kind of a yardstick uh, that allowed people to, to even know that these uh, galaxies were out there. Right. Well, it's a Cepheid var variable that uh, Hubble used, a Cepheid variable in, uh, in Andromeda that Hubble used to show that Andromeda was, was outside of our galaxy, was so distant that it couldn't possibly be part of our star system. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. la later on, it was um, Sandra Faber, here at UC Santa Cruz, along with her colleagues, um, George Blumenthal, who's an astronomer and now chancellor of the university, and Joel Premack, who helped, and I'm, I'm jumping ahead here chronologically, but, but, but helped introduce the idea of cold dark matter, which is yeah. the prevailing theory of what dark matter is. Right. So, right. Uh, yeah, just to give a nod there to all the, the women astronomers uh, who contributed to this. Well, Vera, you know, continues to fight that battle. She's uh, she's 82 now, and she's still working in Washington. I saw her for dinner last weekend, and uh, you know, I asked her the the institute that she's affiliated with, uh, the Department of Terrestrial Magnetism at the Carnegie Institution in Washington. 
I said, I said, so do you still have more women astronomers there than men? And she said, she laughed and said, yes. And it's her, totally her doing. They have more women than men at that particular institution. Wow, yes. wow. Well, yeah. you've gotten to meet her. What's she like? Oh, she's great. <laughs> I mean, she's she's very lively and funny, and uh, she's down in Chile now. And you know, I mean, she's just. You know, she's just out there doing her work. Mm-hmm. Well, um, at what point um, do you think dark matter really, really became more than a guess uh, and, and turned into an agreed-upon conclusion that there is dark matter out there even if we can't find it? Well, Vera Rubin uh, has uh, has told me on several occasions that she feels that there was a real kind of watershed in about 1977, I think, where there was a meeting at Yale where astronomers were were still really questioning the idea of these um, of of this missing mass uh, kind of thing, and then and then the following year, you mentioned uh, Sandra Faber a few minutes ago, uh, Sandy Faber, um, and and somebody else wrote a, a review article that really rounded up all of the literature and all of the arguments, and they reached the conclusion that. Uh, dark matter had to be taken seriously. I don't think it was called dark matter at that point, but that this missing mass had to be taken seriously. And Vera feels that by 1979, the following year, the uh, astronomical community had, had coalesced around it, that the the evidence was so compelling. It wasn't just, I mean, throughout the 70s, Vera went out there and made these observations again and again and again and again and kept getting the same result. And other astronomers started doing it as well. And, you know, they were getting the same result by the dozens. And after a while, you just, you know, you <laughs> you can say, well, that observer is making a mistake and that observer is sloppy. But you can't, but you can't say, well, all of these observers don't know what they're doing. <laughs> but initially, when uh, scientists like Vera Rubin and uh, Jim Peebles um, started suggesting that this might be the case, that uh, astronomers all those years had seriously underestimated the amount of matter out there, you say the reaction was anger in, in many cases? Apparently, yeah. I mean, uh, Vera, Vera says that, that some senior astronomers were not very nice to her. <laughs> <laughs> Upsetting the apple cart. Yeah, yeah, and 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 you know some of that was probably due to uh, to being a woman. You know, in retrospect, it's kind of amazing to think that people had so much confidence that they had correctly estimated all the stuff in the universe. Only you know a few decades after first coming to the realization that there were even other galaxies out there, it seems like a bit of hubris to think that they'd figured it all out. You know, by that point. But what they were basing it on, I guess, was was just this kind of uh, unconscious assumption that what you see is what you get. Mm-hmm. And there's, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, why would you think otherwise? You know, it's, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, Galileo in 1609, 1610 takes this new instrument, the telescope, and looks at the night sky and sees, oh, there are moons around Jupiter. I mean, you don't walk around saying, I'll bet there are moons around Jupiter. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. see them and then you go, wow, that's what that's what's out there. Or if, if you're a cashier at the Air and Space Museum, you say, that's crazy. I guess so. I guess maybe I'm atypical, <laughs> but my assumption is always that there, there's more out there than we know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But but Galileo shows that there's more out there because yeah. he has this new instrument, and then it's a history of more and more and more. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, even in the 20th century, as astronomers are uh, are finding, you know, that there are new galaxies. At that point, they begin looking in non-optical parts of the electromagnetic spectrum, like X-rays and radio waves and all that. And that's a completely different view of the universe. Uh, so there are more phenomena now to 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 look at. But throughout all of that, the unconscious assumption is that 
what's optical or what's non-optical, all falls on the electromagnetic spectrum. It's all something that in some way or other we can see. And that's what distinguishes dark matter from everything else that astronomers have looked at throughout history. And Vera used to say, nobody ever told us that all matter radiated. We just assumed that it did. (laughs) Well, now we've got uh, a couple kinds of matter that we know don't radiate. Uh, There's neutrinos, um, these neutral particles that are flying around out there, and they pass right through things because they don't Mm -hmm. have any electromagnetic interactions. And then there's cold dark matter, which must consist of some other seemingly neutral particle, Mm -hmm. right, that doesn't interact. Right. Let me back up for a moment. So if if in the late 1970s, early 1980s, you say, okay, there's there's a there's a roughly, let's say it's 10 to 1 dark matter to regular matter ratio in the universe. Maybe it's 4 to 1, 5 to 1, but it's but there's a huge discrepancy here. Uh, so you have to start thinking about what it is. And neutrinos, that which you mentioned, were one of the candidates for a while. And they found, in fact, they didn't know if neutrinos had mass. And then they found that neutrinos did have mass, but nowhere near enough to, to account for this huge discrepancy. Mm-hmm. So, so there were these two other candidate particles, purely hypothetical, one called the neutralino, one called the axion. Uh, in the 1970s, the standard model of particle physics was being completed and uh, But there were still some problems with it. And these particles, these hypothetical particles were, uh, quote unquote, invented to fix some of the problems in the standard model. But as they were being invented, people noticed that they would also, if they existed, they would have the right mass and exist in the right quantity. And voila, you had the dark matter component of the universe. So this was a very compelling argument. Mm. But so far, despite posting wanted posters all over the place, <laughs> uh, being on the lookout for axions or neutralinos. Dead or alive. Dead or alive. <laughs> so far, none found. No, and they have been looking since the 1980s. And again, to go back to Vera Rubin, uh, <laughs> uh, she I, I saw her about 10 years ago at a conference, and, and she said, you know, in 1980, I said, they're going to find dark matter within the next 10 years. And then in 1990, I said the same thing. And people have been saying it. I'm tired of saying it. I'm not saying it anymore. And I reminded her of this when I saw her last weekend we had, when, when we had dinner. And, and she said, well, I'll tell you. She said, in 2005, I was at a conference and somebody got up and said uh, that, they, that we would find dark matter in five years. And I got up and I said, no, we've been saying this since 1980. We have to stop saying this. And of course, now it's 2011. And 2005 was more than five years ago. So, mm. <laughs> but, so they've been running all of these experiments and the experiments are great and they should work at some point, but they just haven't reached a level of sensitivity to find these hypothetical particles or uh, the particles don't exist. Mm. Well, that would be a real problem if they don't exist. Really, but how would you know? Uh, <laughs> I mean, because you keep saying, well, we can get more and more sensitive and if we build a bigger and bigger instrument. So, well, yeah. we know that the particles, I say we, I don't know, but uh, physicists mm. know that the, the particles have to um, fulfill certain, uh, you know, descriptions, certain properties. And uh, if right. they look across the entire range of, of particles that, that fall into that spectrum and they don't find them, then I would say that's a serious problem. I know they've got a ways to go before they eliminate all, all the possibilities in that mm-hmm. range. And, of course, the Large Hadron Collider um, is right. one place they might detect them. So maybe we could hear about this any old time now. You know, you never know. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, the, the the difference is that uh, between these two kinds of experiments is that one is trying to detect them, whereas the Large Hadron Collider is trying to create them. Mm-hmm. But that's mm-hmm. but it's you know, but it's just two approaches to the same right. problem. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so that's the state of cold dark matter at this point. Um, I think almost everybody believes it's out there. They're just looking uh, at this point for the kind of particle that would account for it. Um, on the other hand, dark energy. A more recent discovery and a more mysterious one. You say you got really interested in this field about 10 years ago, and that was mm-hmm. not long after dark energy had first been uh, essentially proposed. Yes. By that point, dark matter was uh, part of the orthodoxy, and I could accept that, that there are these you know, hypothet- hypothetical particles that you know, exist in abundance. And okay, you know, because we know that things are passing through us by the trillions every second, and we can't uh, detect them through any traditional means. So okay, I could live with that. But then I started hearing about this dark energy, and you're right. It was discovered, uh, the evidence for it was discovered in 1998, uh, and you'd go to a conference in 2000, 2001, and it was still being debated, but it was such a new concept, and that's really where where I became hooked on the subject. Mm. What was the atmosphere like when you started attending meetings and talking to scientists about dark energy? They felt that the evidence was pretty compelling, but they were still... Uh, you know, they were still willing to knock it down, and the jury was still out. Uh huh. Well, let's let's tell the story of uh, the dark energy revelations. In the nineteen late nineteen eighties, a team of physicists at Berkeley they said, "Okay, if we take all of the mass in the universe, now we know that there's dark matter in addition to regular matter, uh, and we have this expanding universe." Can we figure out what the fate of the universe is by knowing how much mass is there? So if we know that there's so much mass and we know that the universe is expanding, is there enough mass to slow the expansion that eventually it will stop and reverse itself and lead to a big crunch, as they call it? Or is there not enough mass and the universe will kind of peter out in what they call a big chill? Can I, can I uh, leap in at this point and just yeah, provide a, a few other little pieces here? Yeah. Scientists have known that the universe is expanding ever since Edwin Hubble discovered it uh, in the late 1920s. But the assumption was, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that that expansion after the Big Bang Theory was was solidified was sort of um, a, a kind of leftover momentum from the Big Bang and that uh, eventually the matter in the universe, because of gravitation, would slow it down and it would stop expanding. Is that right? That's right. That's that's a very good description. So in the 1980s, these physicists at Berkeley, led by Saul Perlmutter, were putting together a program of observing something called Type 1a supernovae. Supernovae are exploding stars, and they're attractive to astronomers who are trying to look deep into the universe because uh, because they're so bright. And because they flare up and die over, you know, a human time frame that we can manage a couple of weeks as opposed to when you're looking at the rotation of a galaxy. It will take a galaxy, you know, 200 million years to rotate. But this is something that you can look at and it'll blink on and off in the matter of a few weeks. You mean they flare up, explode and die out over just that short a time? Right, right. Or at least their light dies out. Yeah. In terms of uh, what our telescopes can see, right, presumably right. if you were right next to it, it would still be yeah, yeah, it would still yeah. be pretty bright. Right. So their idea was to look out, and this wasn't an original idea. I mean, astronomers have been thinking of some way to figure out the fate of the universe um, since the discovery of the expansion of the universe in the 1920s. 
but their idea was that if you can take this object, this supernova, and if the supernovae, these exploding stars, are all pretty much the same, which is sort of a dicey assumption, mm-hmm. but you have to start somewhere. So they make that assumption. And if they are the same, then you can use their luminosity to determine their distance. The, you know, if they're all 100-watt bulbs, if you say that the 100-watt bulb is 10 feet away and then there's another one that's that's dimmer, you can figure out how far away it is just by looking at how dim it is. So they were going to use supernovae in this way, mm-hmm. pushing across the universe. Mm-hmm. They had trouble getting started. It's a big project. They were, they were physicists. They didn't always know what they were doing. Their equipment was sometimes uh, not adequate. Uh, and they had trouble finding a supernova at that kind, at the distance that they needed until really until 1992. And they started uh, looking at, uh, you know, really taking this program seriously in 1988. So it was a long wait for their first supernova. Yeah, it's not easy, at least it wasn't back then, to find supernovae. Right. They, they'd blink on and off too quickly, you know, as you're surveying the skies to actually catch right. them. Yeah. Right. So... They eventually got their first one, and and then they got a few more because now they were becoming better at it and their equipment was better and so on. And around this time, this other team coalesced, but they were a team of astronomers. And the astronomers, let's say they weren't entirely confident that the physicists would be able to do astronomy <laughs> as well as the astronomers would be able to do astronomy. You're putting it too delicately. By the way, well, these, guys are, these guys are at Harvard, right? Uh, A lot of them are at Harvard, and some are in Chile. Okay, so you had the Harvard-slash-Chile group, uh, who were mostly astronomers. You had the Berkeley group, who were physicists. And to to say the least, it was a clash of cultures there. That's right. You know, in the book, I I, I tried to show this rivalry from alternating points of view. From the Berkeley point of view, the physicist point of view, these guys were coming in and tromping on their territory. They'd been doing the supernova survey for a few years. They were starting to get results. And now at that point, when they start to get results and show that this can be done, these other guys come in and start muscling their way in because they're astronomers and they think they know what they're doing. Now, of course, Mm. from the astronomer's point of view, Mm. they're going, it took these guys four years to find a supernova, Mm. you know, Mm. and they don't know the intricacies of supernovae. They don't know how to, you know, correct for dust between here and the supernova, Mm -hmm. you know, over, Mm -hmm. over, over space. And, you know, they don't know how to do this. They don't know how to do that. And they're, and they're, you know, they're reinventing the wheel. We know the wheel. We've been using wheels forever. So let's just roll it out and see what we can do. So that was the clash of cultures. Oh, oh, and by the way, they're they're hippies in Berkeley, and we're from Harvard. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I don't know that anybody would ever say that the guys at Berkeley Labs are hippies, but okay. (laughs) I just wanted to spice things up a little bit here. Okay, fine. Throw a little gasoline on the flames, you know? (laughs) Right. <laughs> but uh but clearly there was a rivalry uh and and uh and, and some some real contentiousness um mm-hmm, uh mm-hmm. between these two teams both looking for for supernovae but what were they hoping to to get out of this information they sure weren't looking for dark energy no they were looking to see how much the expansion of the universe was slowing down uh-huh. and you know as i said earlier they were trying to figure out is there going to be a big crunch or is there going to be a big chill is it is the universe going to recollapse because there's so much matter in it or is there not enough matter and it will eventually just just peter out so supernovae supernovae were going to be their yardstick their way of measuring the rate of expansion at these great distances right and they were assuming that if you go out to a great enough distance eventually 
the supernovae, which are supposed to be these standard candles, the supernovae are going to begin to appear brighter than they should appear at such and such distance because the the expansion is slowing down. So they're going to be a little bit brighter because they're a little bit closer. Uh-huh. That's what they're. That's what they're looking for. That's what they're looking to measure. And this is, of course, a very you know very delicate measurement to make. Uh, and they were you know they were the two sides were competing, and because the physicists had this head start, they were getting more supernovae. Um, but the astronomers were you know kind of tenaciously coming up from behind and trying to get their own batch of supernovae. So the two teams are racing each other, and and uh, in, in Late 1997, they're both getting data that is beginning not to make sense to them. Instead of the supernovae at these great distances being brighter, which is nearer, which means the expansion is slowing down, they're beginning to see that they're actually dimmer than they should be. And everybody, absolutely everybody, just knew that the expansion of the universe was slowing down. I mean, nobody imagined that it might be doing the opposite. Right. So the data just didn't line up with that. Right. You look at this effect, and it makes absolutely no sense, right? I mean, there's something happening on the cosmic scale that's more powerful than gravity. You have all this matter in the universe, and gravity, you know, it's interacting with all the other matter in the universe, you know, gravitationally. So the universe should be either slowing down the expansion and collapsing, or it should be just kind of petering out or something. And they're finding that it's speeding up, that it's, that, that there's something on the cosmic scale that is more powerful than gravity. It's not only getting bigger, it's getting bigger faster. Something is pushing the universe apart. Right. Right. So now it's 1998, and these two teams are converging on this similar counterintuitive result of the universe uh, accelerating. So their mission at that point was to convince the community because they're coming out and saying that the universe is doing this really crazy thing. Uh, so part of what uh, made their argument for them, I mean, as much as they, you know, as much as each team disliked the other team for one reason or another, for multitudes of reasons, uh, probably being rivals was the best thing that ever happened to them. Mm. Because after they each came out with these results, the community could say, these guys wanted to prove each other wrong, and they both came up with a result independently that makes no sense. So we have to take it seriously. Going back to, to 1998, when the announcements were first made by these two competing teams, yeah, a, a really tricky situation. You had two sets of guys sitting on findings that were huge news, uh, if true. On the other hand, if not true, we're going to embarrass them terribly because they were so completely unexpected and flew in the face of so many um, so many beliefs, right? Right. So, I mean, normally in a situation like that, you've got that kind of finding. You might sit on it for a very long time until you've confirmed it and reconfirmed it. On the other hand, if you're competing and you want to be the first with the big news, you, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's, a, there's a definite push to go fast. So they must have been really fighting with themselves as to how to pull this off. Yeah, they were. There was, uh, I, I, I have a um in the book, I have this whole email string of the astronomer team debating just this issue, saying we have this effect. You know, do we believe it? Do we present it? You know, how how firm does our evidence need to be? How much do we need to back this up? Uh, you know, if the other guys come out first, they'll they'll be able to make a claim and, and so on. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was very much, very, very much debated within the groups. Um, 
You have dug into the rivalry quite a bit. I imagine you've interviewed a lot of these guys. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And actually, what I found is that enough time has passed now. Uh, it's, it, when I was interviewing them, it was you know maybe the 10th anniversary of the discovery of the evidence for dark energy. And enough time had passed, and enough was at stake uh, because of the possibility of this major discovery leading to big prizes. Uh, and it already was getting big prizes in the cosmological community. And so at this point, when I was talking to them, um, you know, everybody was getting nervous about how um, history was going to see the team. And here I was coming in and saying, basically, that I'm going to be the guy to be writing this history, um, you know, the first draft of history. So they found it, you know, I think advantageous to talk to me and to give me as many details as they possibly could. Well, you were in the unenviable position of, of waiting in and trying to sort it all out based, you know, on the testimony of various participants. Um, I'm imagining the Rochamon effect was in full play at some point. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, it must have been kind of head spinning for you. It was. It was uh, it was really difficult, and this project started as an article for the New York Times Magazine in March of 2007. And after that article came out, a lot of guys on what we're calling the Harvard team, the Harvard Chile team, were upset. They felt that I had given undue credit to the Berkeley team, the physicists. <laughs> now, to my mind... This was a very small part of the article. The article was about dark matter and dark energy, and especially dark energy, and about the after effects, and about searching for dark energy, and what does that mean, and these these philosophical implications. And you know, the part that they were objecting over was like only two or three paragraphs, uh, but they were they were really upset. And this is when I began to realize the depth. I mean, I knew that there was. I mean, believe me, when I wrote those two or three paragraphs, I thought I was being really careful. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I mean, I knew I was wading into dangerous territory, so I thought <laughs> I'm gonna, I'm gonna really apportion the credit properly. And 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 they just were all over me. I mean, I just got, um, you know, the the most virulent email from Bob Kirshner on the Harvard side. And I got very polite emails from the guys in, in Chile who said, you know, the historical record is losing us. Everybody's talking about Harvard. Uh -huh. You know, we, we were part of it. But it was, but it was a very, um, it was a very gracious tone. Uh -huh. You know, they were, they were, they were like, you know, should you ever do anything else with this material? I, you know, we urge you strongly to consider us and to and to talk to us. And I read over their emails very carefully, and I thought, you know, these guys have a point if I'm going to do something else with this. And, you know, on the basis of that article, uh, I used that article kind of as a de facto proposal for a book. And so I got this book contract and then started talking to these guys. And they had a, they had a real case that history was shunting them aside mm. in favor of this kind of Harvard-centric view of the team. But they were doing this phenomenal work down in Chile. But, you know, I think, you know, I, I mean, they, they themselves wonder, is there some kind of bias going on that, well, it's the other part of the world, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, it's been um, 12 years or 13 years since that happened. Mm -hmm. uh, how has history appraised them so far? Are they given equal credit then, these two very different groups of scientists? Yeah. They agreed early on these two teams independently arrived at the same conclusion at the same time. Now, as I said earlier, more time goes on and the more honors accrue to this discovery. You know, again, it's a he said, he said kind of thing. And most of these 
guys were guys. So I, I'll say it that way. <laughs> you know, it, get, it gets... It gets complicated in the sense that if you're somebody on one of these teams and you you can take the long view and say it doesn't really matter. But on the other hand, if you feel that you deserve credit for something and you feel that the other guy is taking a little bit more credit than he deserves mm-hmm. maybe and that it's leaving you behind a little bit, then you get very upset. And then it becomes kind of arms race. And that's what's happened in the last few years. These guys have really... Uh, gotten on each other's nerves and and it's really kind of accelerated and if somebody comes out i mean there was a prize a few years ago that saul perlmutter the head of the berkeley labs team he was the sole recipient of that prize in recognition of the discovery of the evidence for dark energy it's a very prestigious prize the falcinelli prize it's awarded only every five years or something like that in italy and it comes with a lot of money and when he was the only one to get it the other side wasn't happy yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. On, the yeah. Other, on the other hand, you talk about a prize given in 2007, the Gruber Prize, which right. uh, was sort of spread equally among the teams. Right. But even there, there was some disagreement because initially the prize was given to uh, Saul Perlmutter and Brian Schmidt, the leader of the other team. And this uh, didn't sit well with Adam Reese, who was the one who was you know, actually working the problem through for the team and 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 writing the paper that would uh, that would come to be seen historically as the announcement paper, the paper where they came out and said there is an accelerating universe or there's evidence for this accelerating universe. We're going to stake our reputations on this claim. Uh, and he was the guy who was who was who was making that discovery. So so now you have Saul and Brian, the the leaders of the two teams, getting this recognition, and Adam doesn't. And so they had to figure out a way to try to accommodate that. And eventually the compromise, which, you know, I don't I don't think everybody was entirely happy with it, but it was the best that they could do, I guess, under the circumstances, was that um, Brian and Saul would get the lion's share of the prize. And then everybody else on the teams, um, on the two teams, which came out to like 51 people or something like that, would, would split the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, small amount for everybody else. Yeah, it was like six thousand or something a piece, um, whereas the two main guys got, I think, a hundred and twenty-five a piece. Mm. Mm. Well, well, let's get back to the science, uh, the dark energy question. So, the the conclusion is that there is this force, this right. energy that's pushing the universe apart, and it's pushing it apart at an accelerating rate, so that the, right. the universe is getting bigger and bigger, and consequently colder and colder. Uh, and eventually will be, just be completely dissipated. Um, what do we know about this actual stuff, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, that's called dark energy? Well, it's a real mystery. You know, for dark matter, we were talking earlier about the neutralino and the axion. At least in dark matter, they're saying, <clears throat> what is it? We have these candidate particles, and maybe we can find them. Dark energy, it's like all bets are off. You know, you referred earlier to the cosmological constant. If it's the cosmological constant, then it's something that is constant over space and time. Mm -hmm. If it's not the cosmological constant, then it's something that is not constant over space and time. Mm -hmm. But what that something is that is constant or is not constant uh, is anybody's guess. The theorists are working hard on it, and they've had all sorts of theories, and they really can't crack this nut. I think it's going to take, and I, and they think it's going to take uh, a reconciliation of some sort between uh, Einstein and, and general relativity and quantum physics, because it's it's just not 
it's just not matching in a way that makes sense to them, which is why they often say that this is really um, perhaps the most important problem today in physics uh, and, and maybe even in science in general, because it's, it's going to require some kind of new Newton to come along and uh, and make sense of the universe again. Because right now what we have is a universe that's 73% dark energy, 23% dark matter, and 4% everything that we've always thought was the universe. You know, we don't know what, what this new understanding of the universe is going to lead to. And what I really wanted to do in this book was to present this revolution as it's happening, because I think that we really have a radically you know, fundamentally new vision of the universe, and it's happening right now. And that's what I wanted to get. I wanted to capture that historical moment. Mm -hmm. Well, Richard, just thank you so much for summing up this rather complicated but obviously momentous story. Well, thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure. Richard Panic's latest book is The 4% Universe, Dark Matter, Dark Energy, and the Race to Discover the Rest of Reality. And as mentioned in both interviews today, scientists are hard at work looking for evidence of dark matter, in the form of weakly interacting massive particles, a.k.a. WIMPs. They're using giant underground detectors in locations around the world. And uh, you might have seen the reports just this past week in the New York Times and elsewhere about the first data to come in from the biggest, most sensitive detector out there. It's buried about a mile under the surface near Rome, Italy. Well, there was some brief hope when uh, scientists first saw the data that they might be getting signs of dark matter which would have been a monumental development. But alas, the signals were too few to be conclusive. So the search continues. This has been the 7th Avenue Project. Our search will continue next week. I hope you join us then. And you can visit us on the web any old time at 7thAvenueProject.com. I'm Robert Polly saying so long.